sell a country, why not sell the air, the clouds, and the great sea, as well as the earth? Did not the great spirit make them all for the use of his children? Tecumseh. Eighteen twelve was a very strange year. The thought first occurred to me while listening to the eighteen twelve overture the other day. The part where they blow the lid off a dozen or two trash cans just makes you want to salute something, anything at all. Windows shook, the floor vibrated under my feet. You figure somewhere in the world an American flag was being raised. This all happened on the turntable, of course. There's no other way to listen to the 1812 Overture, but on vinyl. Well, technically, my wife and I listened to it several years ago in front of a live orchestra. She was 42 weeks pregnant with our twin boys. Astonishingly, the 21-gun salute, or whatever, didn't send her into labor. The police officers who wrapped their knuckles across our door later that night, dead. 1812, the year, not so much the music it inspired, has been on my mind for a number of reasons. As you may already know by now, I've been struggling to pinpoint precisely when the Watchers were released from prison, as prophesied by the Book of Enoch. It states this fact over and over again. After 70 generations, they'll be released from the hills and the valleys of the earth. Perhaps we could insert jubilees into generations. There were 200 watchers and something like 190 meteor craters located upon the earth today. Also, something akin to 195 recognized government entities. Certainly, their release wouldn't go unnoticed. Perhaps they were discharged one by one and not all at once. I don't know. In any such event, the earth likely trembled at their deliverance. Just imagine the raw energy. I guess that's why the new Madrid earthquakes of 1811 through 1812 have recently come to my attention. Though there are a few other notable catastrophic events in the whereabouts of the 19th century, which may need to be discussed at a later time, this seemed like a good contender. We are immediately told by the official narrative that the earthquake on December 16, 1811 was 8.2 on the Richter scale. This was succeeded by a 7.4 aftershock on the very day. The following month produced two more of a similar magnitude. Need I remind you that the Richter scale would not be invented nor developed until 1935, when American seismologist Charles Richter figured out a way of quantifying the magnitude of earthquakes. Regardless, this is how the official narrative operates. Some decades ago, I recall hearing of an event which turned the Mississippi River backwards, and this was it. So New Madrid was kind of a big deal. The Mississippi flowed backwards for three days. The Muscogee people apparently accredited the phenomenon to a river deity, the tie snake. Interesting. The Elohim of Muscogee lore straddled the divide between sky and river, the upper and lower plains, inciting order and chaos. Some took this to mean that the tie snake wanted them to return to their former ways and stop the European settlers. It was an omen. Andrew Jackson played a pivotal role in the War of 1812, which I shall turn to in a moment. But it was the Trail of Tears starting in 1831, which was of his design. I decided to look further into the events surrounding New Madrid, what is often not discussed, 
And this is what I found. Lightning and crackling sparks were reported across the ground. One witness near New Madrid reported sparks of fire spewing from the earth. In the sky, more flashing lights and fires. Metal objects clung to walls. Many reported a strange tingling all over their bodies, while others described being electrocuted. Even stranger were those who said they had no idea an earthquake was rocking the joint due to the electric shock they were receiving. Keep in mind that the earthquakes happened over several weeks throughout this entire ordeal, and even starting two or three years prior, mysterious booms were heard from just beyond the horizon. Rumbling thunder, and what many described as large guns or artillery explosions. Others heard extremely large hissing sounds, as though the earth were seething its teeth and gas was escaping forth. Descriptions included that of metal scraping together and the sizzle of a hot iron after being dropped into a bath of water. Windows shattered. Others felt strangely disoriented. In the hours after December 16th, a dark mist haunted the hills surrounding New Madrid's epicenter. It smelled of sulfur. Many succumbed to nausea and unreasonable coughing. Not only did it eclipse the sun, but the darkness hung like a curtain. Multiple witnesses indicated the sulfurous vapor was so thick that lanterns went out and fires could not be lit. Similar reports were related by those who had been struck by the disease during the bubonic plague. The earthquake was felt as far east as South Carolina. In North Carolina, multiple witnesses reported large extraordinary fires in the air, lasting several hours. Fires as large as blazing houses suspended in place. But what really nabbed their attention was the fact that no sparks accompanied the blazes. Today, we would probably call them orbs. This brings up my next point. Thunderous trumpets in the sky. Angels of death crawling through the city streets like a dark mist, extinguishing lights and turning even the sun into a sackcloth. Alien orbs. The official narrative will always be backed by the scientific explanation. For example, they will remind you that other major earthquakes produce a phenomena known as earthquake lights, something which not even they can dutifully explain. Meanwhile, Enoch unashamedly tells us that divine beings are responsible for all of it. The wind, the rain, lightning, hail, clouds, the waves of the sea. Yohannan, writing in Revelation, affirms such beliefs. In St. Francis County, a wild man of European lore was spotted immediately preceding the earthquakes. Livestock went missing. Others were found mutilated. The monster was blamed. Indeed, something supernatural was happening. In War and Peace, Tolstoy described the Great Comet of 1811 through 1812 as an enormous and brilliant comet which was said to portend all kinds of woes and the end of the world. It was also known as Tecumseh's Comet. And as you can probably imagine, a comet of this caliber, which was visible in the sky for 260 nights, only amplified the earthquake's importance. The name Tecumseh, which means shooting star, derives from a Shawnee leader and prophet who was busy rallying support among neighborhood indigenous tribes hoping to curb the European takeover. In an ironic twist, 
William Tecumseh Sherman was given the Shawnee's name. I say ironic because the Union general likely destroyed more of Grand Tartaria, or rather what remained of the Old World Order in the American South, than just about anybody else in his generation. Oops, <laughs> I've already given much away. Such were the purposes of the Napoleonic Wars. Yes, even in the Americas. That is my proposal at any rate. If you haven't done so, then I highly suggest you listen to my last two episodes on the scrubbing and rewriting of history. Episode 19, The Lost Wars of Yahua and the Anatomy of Anatoly Fomenko, and Episode 20, The Two Lives of Napoleon Bonaparte. As you might imagine, this is a progressive discussion. Speaking of Napoleon, the French emperor apparently could not be outdone by a Shawnee prophet. Bonaparte named the comet after himself. 1812 was the year when the British arrived in America and burned the White House down. It's really a rather awkward pimple in history when you stop to think about it. Maybe even a glitch. They kind of just speed right past that entire embarrassing episode in history class. Probably because nothing about it feels right. They essentially tell us the British arrived, burned down the White House, and then left. Not much else worth remembering was accomplished. If they want you to know anything about the War of 1812, it's that the British came to burn down the White House. The War of 1812 apparently began when the United States declared the big W against the British Crown and her allies in June of 1812. Hopefully, you have already taken note of the fact that Great Britain was engaging Napoleon in war at that precise moment in history. As we shall come to find, the official narrative doesn't add up. Really, pick your version of the tale. Historians in Great Britain tend to see America's War of 1812 as a minor theater of the Napoleonic Wars, while historians in North America tend to see it as a war in their own right. Because Americans can't be outdone. In The Two Lives of Napoleon Bonaparte, I illustrated how the people and events surrounding Napoleon Bonaparte and Napoleon III appeared to be clever duplicates of one another. It is almost as though both Napoleonic Wars were somehow separate and yet one in the same event. One might therefore begin to speculate about the War of 1812 and the American Civil War, as both coincidentally coincided with the Napoleons. None of this will make any sense unless you come to terms with the fact that secret societies have compartmentalized true history. The sudden outburst of violence ended in a stalemate when a peace treaty already earlier agreed upon was ratified by the United States in February 1815. Within several months, Napoleon would meet his own end at the Battle of Waterloo, but not all is as it seems. True, history is written by the victors. Only here, the victors were both sides. Great Britain and America, France and Russia. The simplest explanation to this is that a third unseen enemy needs to be discovered. Call it Grand Tartaria if you'd like. The old world order came to its close. His story was scrubbed. 1812 was one big psyop. The story behind America's fake conflict with Great Britain, as 1812 goes, is probably better undressed in the European theater of war. The official narrative pits Napoleon Bonaparte and the Empire of France against Russian Tsar Alexander I. The Wikipedia describes the Napoleonic Wars as a series of major conflicts 
pitting the French Empire and its allies, led by Napoleon I, against a fluctuating array of European powers formed into various coalitions, financed and led by the United Kingdom. It produced a brief period of French domination over most of Europe. In perhaps its simplest terms, their conflict was ultimately over trade routes. By 1812, it was apparent that Tsar Alexander I had rejected Napoleon Bonaparte's blockade of Great Britain and her allies. It would take a grand army of some 500,000 soldiers, the largest European military force ever recorded up until that time, to change his mind, or die trying. On June 24, 1812, the very month in which America declared war upon Great Britain, Napoleon Bonaparte invaded Russia. You may want to take notes. It is furthermore strange, given what we are of the narrative, that the French emperor would go through all this effort and yet didn't seem remotely interested in pushing his grand army towards a confrontation with the Russian Tsar. Alexander I remained in the capital city of St. Petersburg. Napoleon chose Moscow instead. If you wanted to conquer, oh, I don't know, the United States, then it would probably be a good idea to plant your bum in a rocking chair at the back porch of the White House, rather than some art museum gift shop on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. It just makes sense. Russia made trade with Great Britain and her allies through the port at St. Petersburg. Clearly, Napoleon Bonaparte had something else on his mind. The 1812 fire of Moscow broke out on the 14th of September, 1812, when Russian soldiers and most of its remaining residents abandoned the city just ahead of Napoleon's advancing Grand Army. Count Fyodor Rostopchin ordered the Kremlin and her important buildings, including her grand cathedrals, to be set on fire, destroyed. The fire was so intense that it could be seen over 130 miles, well beyond the curve of the earth, but that's probably none of my business. The fire all but destroyed a city which, by all appearances and depictions, was built of stone. Lieutenant Charles Artois had a different story to tell. In his diary, the soldier wrote, I stood in the courtyard of a big home. Low sun flooded Moscow with golden light. Suddenly caught fire, a second sun. Bright, white, dazzling. It was located 20 degrees above the first sun. True, and shone no more than five seconds. But it has managed to singe person Paul Berger relaxing on the balcony. The walls and roof of the house began to smoke. I ordered the soldiers to pour out on the roof a few dozen buckets of water, and only because these measures could save the estate. In other estates that are closer to the latter-day luminary, the fire started. It is this mysterious celestial flash and was the cause of the terrible fire that destroyed Moscow. So, in review, according to Artois, a second sun appeared in the sky, some 20 degrees above the first and lasting no longer than five seconds. Though the walls of his house began to smoke, the houses closer to the luminary noticeably caught fire first. Poor Paul Berger sat in a chair and was singed. 1812 was a very strange year indeed. Let's read on. Around the ongoing fires, Homestead, where we quartered, survived. But unfortunately, a new attack hit our numbers. Putrid water, intemperance in eating, or some other reason, 
but our people are suffering from the most severe, bloody diarrhea. Weakness in all terms, dizziness, nausea, turning into uncontrollable vomiting, added misery. And we are not alone in this position. All the battalions of the regiment, all the shelves in Moscow, doctors suspected dysentery or cholera and recommended to quickly leave the inhospitable city. Just now came Pierre Dury. His squad is 10 miles from the Moscow gate. All are healthy and happy. However, troubled Russian partisans, seeing our deplorable condition, he immediately turned back, afraid of catching an infection. By this point, the Russians have yet to leave Moscow, nor has Napoleon Bonaparte advanced upon it. Furthermore, a squadron just 10 miles from the Moscow gate is said to be healthy. The sudden outbreak of putrid water, bloody diarrhea, dizziness, nausea, and uncontrollable vomiting therefore seems odd and out of place, unless we are to consider the source of the fire. There are still more clues to be had. A week later, the lieutenant reported, We started losing his hair. I fear soon our entire squad, the whole band, will become bald regiment. That would sound a lot better with a Russian accent. Not only were the soldiers hairless, they were covered with ulcers and sores. Even the horses were sick. That, he said, is confusing to the veterinarians. Another Russian soldier present in Moscow, when Lieutenant Charles Artois's second son appeared, presents a similar testimony. The fire came from the skies. It came three times and then went away. 1812 keeps getting stranger and stranger. So far, we have dealt with earthquakes and black mist, thunderous booms and orbs, a comet, and even a wild man. Also, the White House burned down. That's all fine and dandy, easily explained away by science journals and other monthly subscriptions. But now you're probably wondering at this point, what could possibly account for or explain away a second sun over Moscow on the 14th of September, 1812. Perhaps the same way in which we are to take into account the highly unusual method of destruction exemplified by the 2018 Paradise, California fire. You've probably seen photos of the fire's ability to destroy entire rows of tract housing while leaving the trees surrounding them completely green and unsinged. If this little detail has passed you by, then you may want to rethink the nature of the narrative. Let me ask you something. How do you melt aluminum and steel? Do a search in the matrix on the Paradise, California fires, and then look at the pictures provided. Take as long as you need. Forest fires cannot melt steel beams. No, they cannot. In one provided photo, only the car has been damaged. Everything else surrounding the car remains green. Again, take as long as you need. When making mention of Napoleon's advancement towards Moscow, I may have overlooked one tiny, but perhaps not so insignificant detail. And this would be the Cossacks. On June 9th and 10th, 1812, Russian General Matvey Platov engaged Napoleon in battle at a place called Mur. With him were eight Cossack regiments. Little is known to us regarding the old world Cossacks. Records are scarce. Uh-huh, missing books again. But here is some of what we are told. The Cossacks derived from the outer edges of the Russian frontier, most notably north of the Black Sea. Their society was ethnically diverse. 
with some of their origins being rooted in Scotland. Among the ranks of the Cossacks were Jews. We will later come to know them as Bolsheviks. And the Bolsheviks, as we all know, struck back with the Ashkenazi Jews takeover of Russia in 1917 and Woodstock in 1969. In an upcoming episode, I may decide to stick my nose where it doesn't belong and dare to ask the question, are the Tartars Phoenicians? And more importantly, are the Phoenicians Jews? That is all for now. What we are perhaps not being told, and I use perhaps loosely, is another narrative altogether. Whenever the Cossacks are fighting for Russia, as we see at the Battle of Myrrh, they are called Cossacks. But when they destroy Romanov troops and invade Russian cities, as we see with the Russo-Crimean Wars, they are called Tartars. Were the Cossacks with Alexander against Napoleon? Or alternately, were Napoleon and Alexander unified together against the Cossacks who were tied to Great Tartary? History doesn't say. Napoleon Bonaparte's entire narrative against Great Britain and her allies is undeniably suspect. Pull one leg out from under the table and the whole establishment collapses. In their correspondences, Alexander I and Napoleon Bonaparte referred to each other as brothers. Right away, just looking at Russia's Centennial Medal, we should recognize that there is cognitive dissonance which probably deserves a battering ram. Alexander I and Napoleon Bonaparte were friends. Very good friends. Kind of like Union General William Tecumseh Sherman and Confederate General Joe Johnston. The Virginian was a pallbearer at Sherman's funeral. But that's a Napoleonic war for another time. If Napoleon and Alexander I were combatants, then their 1812 Centennial Medal is rather odd, to say the least. Roughly translated, it reads, Strength is in the unity, will of God, firmness of royalty, love for homeland and people. And if the painting of Napoleon and Alexander hugging each other doesn't scream bromance, then I don't know what to tell you guys. And if I'm not mistaken, an online search in the Matrix will reveal a painting of Alexander I and Napoleon Bonaparte kissing. Yeah, that's not odd at all. If you've seen the Centennial Medal, then you may have noticed how it unified both men, Napoleon and Alexander I, with a double-headed eagle. This is precisely why it's important to have eyes to see. The occult thinks people are stupid and won't even think to notice a two-headed eagle on a coin or a flag or a plaque, let alone a branch in a tree. And for the most part, it's true. Point out the defacement of the sky above our heads in something we've long called chemtrails, and people are like, nuh-uh, nuh-uh, you're so wrong about that. In recent months, the media has finally admitted to what we've been saying all along that they're engineering the weather. And the Na'am people are like, our government knows what they're doing, okay? But getting back to the eagle, that's generally not the sort of design one side would choose if they were seeking to undo the other, as it's the symbol most often associated with alchemy and the Roman Byzantine Empire, the east and west legs of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and Egypt, and America, also Langley, and another thing, it's the emblem of the Scottish Rite, first accepted by Freemasonry in 1758. This would be the very year when the body calling itself the Council of Emperors of the East and West was established in Paris. 
Remember George Floyd? He's the black man whose neck was stepped on for the matter of 8 minutes and 46 seconds by a white police officer slash actor named Charles Chauvin. The double-headed eagle was pronounced as a tattoo on his chest. How easily we soon forget. Floyd and Chauvin worked together at a nightclub. A total deal breaker if you ask me. There's a reason why the phoenix is more often depicted as black. It's because he's risen from the ashes. Resurrected. We live in a world where alchemy is reality, and chaos rises from the fiery ashes of disorder. It was Confederate General and 33-degree Freemason Albert Pike who accredited the double-headed eagle as none other than the Philosopher's Stone. The eagle signifies a dual nature, male and female, sun and moon, Napoleon Bonaparte and Alexander I, fire and water, the active and passive principle. Such unification is the Philosopher's Stone the third and central pillar of Freemasonry. If you want this described in epic cinematic terms, Joseph Campbell, the man who wholly inspired Star Wars, wrote, The aim of the alchemist was to achieve not a terminal perfection, but a process ever continuing, of which their stone should become at once the model and the catalyst, a process whereby and wherein all pairs of opposites, eternity and time, heaven and hell, male and female, youth and age, should be brought together by something midway between perfected and unperfected bodies. Whatever was ultimately going down in Russia cannot be separated from secret societies, nor can it be separated from the methods by which they operate. 1812 had something to do with the spiritual perfection of man. Napoleon was a wizard. I recently stumbled upon an article in Snopes that was trying terribly hard to disprove Napoleon was a Freemason by claiming he may have had a bad habit of making Freemason postures with his hand in several of his portraits. But the truth of the matter was that his artist was a Freemason and the Emperor of France was gullible to Freemasonry. Oh, sigh. That, or that he simply had stomach issues. Just, <laughs> just make it stop already. I don't know how else to break this to you. But Napoleon was the Emperor of France. Bonaparte was in the know. Let's see who else in history had stomach issues. At this very moment, I am doing an image search in the Matrix to see who else in history had the bad habit of tucking their hand into their shirt. George Washington was a serial abuser of bad habits and revealing stomach issues. Also, Karl Marx. Washington and Marx we're in the same club. Oh no, not John Wilkes Booth too. Pepto-Bismol, whose active ingredient is bismuth subsalicylate, wasn't invented until 1901. The most destructive explosion on Earth any time in recent recorded history happened in Indonesia in April of 1815. The Mount Tambora eruption blew 13,000 feet high, according to the official narrative, and is called a VIE-7 event. I had to look this up. A VEI-7 event will produce a buttload of ash deposit. This includes large masses of sulfur, carbon dioxide, and other volcanic gases, all of which are expected to circle the earth many times over. At any rate, the ash flowing from the Mount Tambora eruption is estimated to have covered three-fourths of the earth. On February 18, 1815, the War of 1812 in America came to an end. 
for Napoleon, the Battle of Waterloo went down on June 18, 1815. Darkness dominated the day. The Mount Tambora eruption blotted out the sun. In the midst of the chaos, 1812 was the year when the waltz was introduced to England. Critics found it disgusting and vulgar. In Germany, the Brothers Grimm published Rumpelstiltskin. On May the 3rd, the U.S. passed its first foreign aid bill to aid Venezuela earthquake victims. On May 11th, British Prime Minister Spencer Percival was assassinated by John Billingham in the lobby of the House of Commons, London. That same day, citizenship was granted to Prussian Jews. And within the week, the first Russian settlement was established in California at Russian River just west of Sacramento. Elsewhere in the world, the ruins of Petra were discovered by Swiss explorer Johann Ludwig Burkhardt. In 1813, pineapple and coffee would be planted in Hawaii. America received its nickname, Uncle Sam, apparently in part to Samuel Wilson, a meatpacker from Troy, New York, who supplied barrels of beef to the United States Army during the War of 1812. The American government formed the Office of Surgeon General and passed an act to encourage vaccination, the first federal endorsement of a medical practice in American history. Back in Europe, Russians finally defeated the short-lived kingdom of Westphalia, vassal state of the first French empire in which was ruled by Napoleon's brother, Jerome Bonaparte. In Vienna, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony premiered. 1812 was a very strange year indeed.